0: of Scripture before I begin the message itself, I would encourage you to turn, and I'm going to point out to you that Josh and I didn't collaborate on this whatever, just another example of God's providence, but I'm going to ask you to turn to Psalm 23. I'm going to read. That psalm, Psalm 23, a psalm of David. Jehovah is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He guideth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Jehovah forever. William Plummer a 19th century pastor and theologian and commentator, commentator wrote these words about the 23rd Psalm. And he said, some pious souls are troubled because they cannot at all times or often use in its joyous import the language of this psalm. Such should remember that David, though he lived long, never wrote but one 23rd Psalm. Some of his odes do indeed express as lively a faith as this, and faith can walk in darkness. But where else do we find a whole Psalm expressive of personal confidence, joy, and triumph from beginning to end? God's people have their seasons of darkness and their times of rejoicing. I'm going to submit that David spent a long night in Mahatham after those friends had come and brought him supplies and so on. You will recall that at the end of the 17th chapter these friends brought him the needed supplies for himself and his people that were with him. The Lord provided through the means of these men. And so David was somewhat comforted. And he lay down his head to sleep that night, perhaps the first good night of rest that he had had in some time. And I would submit also that each one of us when we've been between a rock and a hard place, as I've suggested David was in Mahaniam with his very own son, Absalom, seeking his throne through his death. That David rested his head upon his pillow, whether that was a rock or a bag of corn, he rested his head and he meditated I'm going to submit without any warrant but in the language of what we just read from William Plummer that this psalm was going through King David's mind reminding him of the goodness of his God reminding him that God is his shepherd that God is the one who is taking care of him I'm going to admit and I think that if each of us consider and are candid with ourselves that we have all been in such a place as David was here and perhaps even being troubled through the night trying to sleep and wondering about the next day's events and experiencing homesickness a part of nostalgia reminiscing on the things that have been and not being able to help reminiscing on the things that might have been I candidly admit that I have experienced this more often than I would like David reminiscing on how good God is to him how good God had been to him Reflecting on how God had anointed him to be king. Reflecting even before that. He he was his shepherd, God. Jehovah God was his shepherd as he confronted that giant Philistine. Jehovah God was his shepherd. And led him through the wilderness as Saul was seeking his life. In many other battles, in many other instances, his God was with him but also reflecting on his family life. These things are conjoined in our life as human beings. And as one writer suggested, taking some license, but I don't doubt that there was some reality to what he was suggesting, David reflecting on the days of raising his family, the days of watching Absalom As a young child playing with Amnon, playing with his other siblings, playing with Tamar, and so on. Little children and and enjoying watching them. Reflecting on what had happened. I'm not recommending that you read any books on what happened but I'm saying that we ought to reflect in our hearts, searching our own selves, and we ought to be crying unto God to search us. We ought to spend times of reflection. And in this nostalgia, I submit that David was experiencing an intense longing for home. And when I say that, Not talking about Jerusalem. And if we read this Psalm 23 over and again, we'll see that his longing was for the house of Jehovah forever. And I doubt not, at least not very much, that David reflected and turned this Psalm over in his mind and his heart again and again even after his sin, humanly speaking, as a second cause had brought this affliction upon him, upon his family, upon his nation, upon God's people, that they would have this civil war. Acute reflection. Some have suggested with regard to nostalgia, we know how that can vary looking for the good old days. And we can, we can do that in manners that we ought not to, but nonetheless, looking at how God has dealt with us, we can see many good days, many good old days, if we want to call them that, where the Lord had kept us through this and through that, where the Lord has provided his incredibly great and marvelous faithfulness to his people. His power to provide everything, reflecting on times of peace and goodness. A night of reflection. Think of that 128 psalm, I think it is, 128, where we read, Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. (coughs) Surely David reflected much on that, as he anticipated Absalom coming with a massive army to try to usurp his own father, to try to usurp his father's throne, to take his father's life. I had titled this message, Reasonable Faith, could be titled Sanctified Reason." But I begin by suggesting after we read the first few verses of chapter 18 of 2 Samuel to get us back into David's position at this time. We read, And David numbered the people that were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent forth the people, a third part under the hand of Joab, and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. But the people said, Thou shalt not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us, neither if half of us die will they care for us, but thou art worth ten thousand of us. Therefore now it is better that thou be ready to succor us out of the city. And the king said unto them, What seemeth you best, I will do. And the king sat stood by the gate side, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. David now, after this night of reflection and this time of uh, reminding himself that God is his shepherd, and his faith being emboldened, if we can put it that way, his faith being enlarged, his faith being quickened. He sets himself to the, if we can call it this way, the the secular activities that he must engage in as king, the human activities. And he counts the people, he numbers the people, that were with him and he sets these three captains as they're called in the scriptures over these three different groups in order to brace themselves in order to set themselves in order to take their places of defense from this onslaught that they anticipated we could have also called this providence and practicality David had to address the practical issues of what faced him now but I'm sure he was remembering that it was his shepherd it was God himself who had provided David with reason I mean with a reasonable mind with reason with the ability to reason to determine how to divide the people and who to set over those divisions in the battle God provided him these things that he would reasonably and properly place these men under him. It reminded me of, of what we see in Luke 14. You will remember the words of Christ in Luke 14 at verse 25. Let's go down to verse 20. Eight, where Christ brings forth these illustrations. Some writers call them parables. I'm not going to contend with them. Parables are illustrations. But he says, Which of you desiring to build a tower doth not first sit down and count the cost, whether he have wherewith to complete it, lest happily when he hath laid a foundation and is not able to finish all that, behold, begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Sadly, we have many instances of this before us in our country, again in our remembrance. I'm sure that we all know of some who began well. And as far as we know now, they are not finishing the course they have given up on Christ, they have given up on the scripture, they have given up on God and perhaps they didn't count the cost but Christ is using this as an illustration and then he goes on to say or what king as he goeth to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and take counsel whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000 or else While the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and asks conditions of peace. One writer suggested that this spoke of the reckless king and the reasonable king. The reasonable king, the one using reason. But he's using, again, sanctified reason in the case of David sanctified reason and he's setting his forces up for the battle. There is no option there's no option for David he can't surrender he would be giving up the crown to Absalom if he surrenders he'd be giving up his life that isn't an option that's not a choice he can't make peace with Absalom. Absalom will not make peace with him. So in that regard, this is illustration, does not parallel. But it is interesting that Christ used the, the number 20,000. Another king coming against him with 20,000 because if we look back at Second Samuel and in that 18th chapter we find Absalom's forces spoken of as numbering 20,000, which is just a point of interest. But also that David, we speak and we read of thousands, divided his troops into thousands and set these captains over thousands. So it's not impossible that they had 3,000, 4,000 apiece. They could have had more. But nonetheless, David is using his reason that God has given him. He's using his mind that God has given him to reason. You remember how that David behaved himself in battle, in warfare, and so on. He was brilliant, and with a comparatively few number of men, he won many battles. And he was feared by the Philistines and other enemies. He was very resourceful. He was a magnificent leader of troops, he was a wonderful general, he had a mind for warfare that God had given him. So he's using his reason, but he knows that he has no option, as Christ spoke of this king in Luke 14, he has no option of surrender. The only option is to set himself as best he can with the mind that God has given him regarding warfare he must as one writer said he must take the leap he must 20,000 coming at him there's no option to do nothing as we looked at last week those that do nothing he has no option to do nothing isaiah in his first chapter in verse 18 this familiar familiar verse come now and let us reason together saith jehovah though your sins be as scarlet they shall be white as snow though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And of course, that's the popular part of that verse. But it goes on. If, if ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of Jehovah has spoken it. And we could add, Choose you this day whom ye will serve come let us reason together who will you serve men are called upon to use the reason and the mind that God has given to us we are not like animals without reason Now I know that the scriptures seem to indicate that animals have souls and I I'm not prepared to contend enter into that debate but animals are still called in the scripture brutes without reason and whether they have souls or not they can't reason I know you may think that they do and we just lost our little Yorkshire Yorkshire Terrier last year and I never thought that she reasoned but I thought that she was fond of me come up and sit by me constantly, and so on. And I was very fond of her, but I have to tell you, I didn't love her. I didn't love her. I was very fond of her, and I appreciated her. I don't believe that we're called to love animals. We can like them. We can be fond of them. Our love is given us to love God and to love men. But I'm only bringing that up as a side sidebar animals without reason in in second Peter two twelve, Peter refers to some of these evil men that he's talking about as those without reason they're unreasonable they're irrational God has given man reason they're brutes as I already said mere animals without reason without intelligence Mere animals. Yes, they have instincts. Thomas Watson said, religion has reason on its side. David had reason on his side. Religion had, has reason on its side because true religion, Christianity, faith in Christ Jesus has God, has Christ, has God the Holy Spirit on its side. Sanctified reason. But Watson goes on, there is all the reason in the world why we should do as God would have us to do. David's using his reason, but he's trusting in the word. He's trusting in the word of God to do what God would have him to do. And as far as he understands that he is doing that, then he uses his reason as one of those second causes in God's providence. The God of heaven, Watson, went on, condescends to reason the case with those that would contradict him and find fault with his proceedings. For he will be justified when he speaks. He's willing to reason. He's willing to reason. And we are to use the gift of God, that reason, that mind that he's given to us. And David sets himself about doing just that. As he prepares for battle. He also uses the gift of strategy. Which was given to him of God. The gift of strategy. He was willing to use. And he's dividing his men strategically. He's setting them out strategically. He's trusting in the strategies that they will use. Strategy is not a bad word in and of itself. We even see Joshua using strategy. When he approached Jericho, the Prince of the Lord of Hosts, let me remind myself of exactly the title that is, that is given to him in Joshua. But it's a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ and the title that he is given in Joshua 5. Joshua lifted up his his eyes and he saw a man standing over him. And he said, nay, this man said, nay, but as prince of the host of Jehovah, am I now come, prince of the host of Jehovah. Does that not sound like Lord God of hosts? And we read even in the New Testament twice, the God of Saviot which seems like references to our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of battle, if you will, the Lord of armies, Jesus Christ, the prince of the host of Jehovah, Jehovah, Sabaoth. Jesus Christ, the prince. But he instructed Joshua how to take Jericho. We won't go into that, but you remember how that the, he followed the instructions implicitly And the walls fell down. Shortly after that, he listened to the people that said about the next little city, Ai. He sent some scouts and they came back and said, oh, it's just a little one. We blew down Jericho, we can take Ai easily. We can only just send a few thousand or less. And so Joshua listened to them. That's heeding unwise counsel. That's heeding the counsel of men and not of God. And you'll remember that when they went and attacked Ai, they lost some 30 men, I believe it was, in that battle and they fled. They were humiliated, embarrassed, fleeing from these men of Ai who were much less in number than those in Jericho. And so you have this comparison here between listening to the counsel of God, the prince of the host of Jehovah, or listening to the counsel of men sometimes the counsel of men is based on the word of god and then we give heed to it but if it's not the word of god we don't and we know how that Joshua was instructed after that defeat how to take Ai and I struggled with this some years ago because the strategy employed and given to him by god was set an ambush deceive those people of Ai to come out thinking you're running from them again. And then you have these men set in ambush and they fall upon them and kill them all. That wasn't David's plan, or Joshua's rather. That wasn't the Israelites plan, that was God's plan. And I struggled with that. The God who cannot lie, his strategy is to deceive. Make them believe that you're fleeing and then you fall upon them when they come out of the city. And, and, and then they, they, they run, rush back into the city and kill all of them in the city as well. But strategy isn't denied to us. Strategy is not denied to us. And in warfare, we use strategy. And God gives us many times strategy, but in particular, he gave his people strategy. We're to listen to the feelings Of the people in regard to understanding what their thoughts are but then it has to be weighed against the Word of God has to be weighed against the Word of God we can take the temperature of the people David gave heed to the people when they said no you're not gonna go out and they gave sound reasonings you're the anointed one of God to lead your people And you're worth 10,000 of us. They listened to the counsel of the word of God and not to David's suggestion. And David listened to their feelings in the matter. They weren't contradicting the word of God when they said that. You remember how the people contradicted God when they told Samuel, we want a king like the other nations. And Samuel did what they wanted after God told them, you know, they're refusing me. They're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me, God, the Lord. And we could ask those people of Israel, how did that work for you? What kind of a king was Saul? God even had Samuel tell them right afterward what sort of a man what sort of a king this man would be that they were going to choose. And that's what they got. And we could ask, how did that work for you? But David listens to these people. He listens to them. And he also, we can presume that he yielded to the experience of his officers, his captains that he had set over those three bodies of people this undoubtedly includes these generals, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, the Gittite. And we read in the scriptures, especially in Proverbs, we read in Proverbs 24, 6, for by wise guidance, thou shalt make thy war. And in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. The multitude of counselors. Not only, not only in warfare, but I believe that this pertains to the church as well. pertains to the eldership, a multitude of counselors. And it's sad that more people, more Christians, don't understand that, even though there's manifold evidences given examples of where one man set over 500 people, it just doesn't work. God hasn't appointed that. There's a plurality and a parity among elders that we find in the scriptures, even as there's a plurality of generals in David's army. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. It's for the good of the church, the body of Jesus Christ. The church is not a democracy, however, we point that out. The church, the body of Jesus Christ, because it's his body, is not a democracy. It's the people of God with officers set over them according to God's appointment only to guide them, to give them example, to follow, not to push them, but to lead them. By example, but reason, again, is the main emphasis of this message today. Reason, God-given reason. It's reason and the word of God. We need to underline that. In Acts 17:2, we read of Paul uh, before those men, before the Areopagus in Athens. And what do we read there? That Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. There you have reason and the word. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now we know. Do we not know by experience? But we know one way or another. If we've never experienced it, we should understand and know that we cannot convince another person. We cannot convince an unbeliever that the Bible is God's word. But the Holy Spirit can, and only God can, convince an unbeliever that the scriptures are the word of God and that Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only refuge, the only salvation. We read in 1 Peter 3.15, Peter talking and exhorting us to sanctify in our hearts Christ as Lord. Sanctify, set apart Christ in our hearts as Lord. Being ready always to give answer to the reason of the hope that is within us. Again, The word of God and reason joined together. Come, let us reason together, God has said. Come, let us reason together. Don't dismiss reason, but sanctify it. Wash it in the word, as it were. Compare it with the scriptures. Be certain that your reason, that the motives for your reasons are of God, are godly a Christ-honoring and God-honoring. Let's pray. Father, we confess our great dependence upon thee for even reasoning anything. Father, we pray that thou would quicken our hearts and quicken our minds, that we might indeed be able to give an answer To anyone who would ask us of the reason of our hope and we would be able to pronounce the reason of our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ himself we pray that thou would do this for thy glory to magnify thy name to exalt Christ to build the church we pray in Jesus name Amen Would you stand, please, for the benediction from Numbers 6. Jehovah, bless thee and keep thee. Jehovah, make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Jehovah, lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace.